So I guess you figured out today's Easter Sunday, right? <laughs> but you know, in, a, in an unusual confluence of events that hasn't taken place since 1956, it also happens to be April 1st, uh, a day that's commonly referred to as April Fool's Day, a day that uh, by popular custom is full of uh, practical jokes and trying to dupe the unexpected. So don't be surprised if someone comes up to you today and tells you your shoes are untied or... Uh, or there's a sign on the ceiling that says gullible. <laughs> or, or maybe gives you directions uh, to the elevator over in the fellowship hall. So, so beware, right? That's all I'm saying. And, and there's nothing particularly wrong with that because if you know me, you know that uh, no one loves a good joke better than I do. Right? And I think God has a fantastic sense of humor. I truly believe that. But, you know, now of course we know that the sacred scriptures don't mention April Fool's Day, but the Apostle Paul does pick up the theme of foolishness in his epistles, uh, not to achieve a, a cheap laugh or to, to pull a corny joke, but to actually deliver one of the most powerful and poignant expositions of the gospel in the New Testament. And, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. So uh, in one respect, if you came today looking for a, a run-of-the-mill, uh, uninspired, traditional Easter sermon, well then, actually the joke is on you. April Fool's. But seriously, seriously, what, what I really want us to see today and really every day that we're together is the revolutionary, radical, crazy kind of love that sent our Lord Jesus Christ to the cross and not just to the cross, but that raised him to life again in the empty tomb of Easter. That tomb that turned the world upside down and proved once and for all that the foolishness of God's love is wiser than the wisdom of men. And that message comes to us today from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, it's really a, a signature passage written by the apostle to the church there in Corinth to highlight the centrality of the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be looking at together today, beginning in verse 18. So hear now the words of the true and living God. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. But we who believe are being saved, know that it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It's foolishness to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the, the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And this foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose those things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think that they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. 
As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scripture says, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. Now, if you've had the opportunity to study Paul's missionary journeys, you'll remember that we're told he had been divinely directed to the city of Philippi, where, according to Acts chapter 16, a church was founded. And from there, then the apostle went on to Thessalonica and then to Berea and then over to the city of Athens, a place where we know from history that he had a confrontation with the great humanist philosophers of the day. A confrontation at a place called the Areopagus, or the, the, the Romans called it Mars Hill. But either way, uh, it was an open-air court on the crest of a hill just west of the Acropolis. Uh, and its majestic Parthenon built as a temple to Athena in the 5th century B.C. It's a place where men like Plato and, and Aristotle had once walked and, and taught there. A place where the, the cultural elite were hoping to hear some new teaching and we're always, in the words of 2 Timothy 3, 7, learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. And, you know, if you think about it, that, that mindset really fits 21st century Americans as nicely as it fit 1st century Athenians, doesn't it? Because both have in common a worldview that's humanistic and pluralistic and stubbornly skeptical. A worldview where humanity is the the center and the, the height and the, the end and measure of all things in the universe. And then after this, uh, this great debate that Paul had in Athens with the, the cynics and the, the Stoics and the Epicurean philosophers, so the apostle moved on. He moved on about 45 miles west of Athens to the city of Corinth, where our, our letter today is addressed to, a city that just like Athens was fully immersed in the Greek culture. And it was... Uh, next to Athens itself, one of the crown jewels of a liberal arts education in the ancient world. It was a place where the golden-tongued orator was elevated as the celebrity of the day, e even above its Olympic athletes and high officials. Uh, it was a place where public speech at the time was regarded as the highest form of entertainment uh, and where they idolized those who excelled in the art of persuasion. It's a place where the, the lecturer and the teacher was always trying to attract a following and and win an audience with his eloquent way with words and his ability to keep an audience spellbound by his, his oratory and his theatrics uh, and his rhetoric and, and human reason. So when Paul comes along, uh, the Corinthians are sizing him up on that standard and almost immediately they're ready to pigeonhole him and his foreign religion. Uh, they're ready to write him off based on his speaking ability and his ineloquence and his poor stage presence. Uh, and even his size and physical appearance because by Paul's own admission, he came up pretty short, literally and figuratively. He, he was lacking in regards to charisma and with regard to diction and, and sophistication. He didn't have all the polished techniques of the professional speech maker. Right? Paul, Paul just simply didn't meet their expectations, plain and simple. But you know, Paul saw himself in an entirely different light. Paul saw himself not as a golden-tongued orator, but as a herald. And, you know, we still have those guys around once in a while, right, at, at a coronation or maybe a royal wedding. But in antiquity, heralds were vitally important. Heralds were the mouthpiece of authority. 
they were the equivalent of today's press conference or, or public alert system. They were men who were regularly commissioned by the Roman Empire to go out from the throne of Caesar and, and into the marketplace and into the town square or at the city gate and to gather the people and to lift up his voice and deliver a message and to bring an announcement that had been assigned to him by a higher authority and say, good news, good news from the throne of Caesar. And because of that, a herald's mindset was totally different from that of a public speaker or lecturer. Because uh, you see, heralds were obedience-oriented, not results-oriented. Because you see, the herald wasn't judged by his delivery style, but by his faithfulness to the message. And that herald, to be a faithful herald, simply needed to be faithful to his master and to his master's message. That's it. Because the success of the herald wasn't determined by the substance of the information he carried, but by his faithfulness to deliver it. And his measure of achievement was only determined by a clear articulation of the message being sent, regardless of the audience's response. And you know, in that... Uh, same thing is true of those of us who share the gospel, whether it's you, uh, when you share your faith with a friend uh, or with a neighbor, uh, or, or it's me giving an exposition uh, of the word of God from the pulpit because we are required, no, really, we're uh, more than required, we are commanded to faithfully deliver the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth of God's word. And, and our hearers, well, they can take it or leave it. Because as I said two weeks ago, every time you and I share the good news of the gospel, we are 100% successful. 100% successful. How'd you like to be on that kind of sports team, right? And the reason that's true is because God, the Holy Spirit, will either use your testimony to change a life or he will use it to silence those who may one day say in the judgment, I never knew. Nobody told me. That's not fair. And you see, that confidence, though, should make us eager to share this good news regardless of how foolish it sounds, knowing that it is God that goes before us and that God is the one who prepares hearts to receive him and not our own personal skill or persuasiveness. And that ultimately, it's on the foundation of his faithful word that humanity will either stand or fall. That's why the Apostle Paul grounds his argument in the Old Testament when in our text today, he quoted from Isaiah 29, which says, And so the Lord says, These people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And he says, Because of this, I will once again astound these hypocrites with amazing wonders. The wisdom of the wise will pass away, and the intelligence of the intelligent will disappear. And so Paul quotes this great Old Testament scripture almost as a challenge to the wise men of his day to, to step up and and to present their theories and their wisdom and their philosophy of life and try to match them up against the wisdom of God and his plan of redemption. And, you know, on the surface, that might sound like a pretty easy job. You know, just like I told the kids, it might seem like child's play to refute the claim that the death of a lone Jewish rabbi convicted of treason against Rome and blasphemy against his own religion was actually a long-awaited messiah. It might seem like the simplest thing in the world to refute the testimony of 11 ragtag disciples who claimed that their dead master had somehow come back to life, even though dozens of people had watched him die of asphyxiation on the cross, even though a Roman soldier had run him through with a spear 
and, and the religious officials had watched him be buried uh, and then locked in a guarded tomb. And, and people will say to you, you, you expect me to base my whole life and the possibility of an afterlife on that. Yeah, Paul, good one. Good one. If I believe that, you probably have a Roman bridge or maybe an aqueduct you want to sell me, right? Because right from the beginning, the most common view of the cross has been it's crazy. That the, the cross is foolishness. And Paul says, you know what? You're exactly right. It is foolishness. But only to those who are perishing. Only to those who are whistling past the graveyard. Uh, it's the, the hollow uh, laughter of gallows humor. And Paul wasn't deaf to it. No, he, he listened very carefully. And he noted its sound. And so he says in our verse today, he said, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. And you know, that, that foolishness, that word foolishness in the verse comes from the Greek word moros, which is where we get our English word moron from. Because to the Greek and to the Roman mind to believe in Christ and in his cross alone uh, as the one way of salvation was a belief of a moron. Uh, it, it's just like uh, folks do today. They, they think that this kind of exclusive and narrow-minded message is simply unacceptable. That's stupid. Unintelligent. Uh, unacceptable to believe that Jesus is the only way to God. And in the face of the world's indictment, Paul boldly shows that the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world are headed in completely opposite directions. Uh, such that the secular world, through its wisdom, can and did not come to know God on its own. Because the only way to know the God of the universe is through His Son. And it pleased God that it would be that way. So, so that even the manner in which the message is brought is designed to be, on the surface, apparently foolish. And that is because God will not allow human cleverness to eclipse His glory. So He wants His heralds, His, his people, His witnesses to lean completely upon the sufficiency of Scripture and the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit and nothing else. Nothing else. You know, in the late 1800s, the great evangelist D.L. Moody, anybody heard of him? You guys know D.L. Moody, right? A man who had been used by God to win millions to Christ all over the world was invited to preach at New York's sophisticated Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Uh, many of the, the more intellectual parishioners weren't too keen to hear him, but he came anyway. And if you know anything about his life, you know that nothing in Moody's early life suggested that he would amount to anything, let alone become internationally famous. On the contrary, this remarkable man who was born into abject poverty in 1837 in rural Massachusetts never secured more than four years of formal schooling. That's it. But he knew that God had called him and he knew that all he could do was rely, as the Apostle Paul did, on his master and on his message. In fact, Moody himself admitted, he said, I know perfectly well that wherever I go and preach, that there are many better preachers than I am. But all I can say about that is the Lord uses me. So he, he comes anyway. He comes up to this, the grand pulpit of the Fifth Avenue Church, and he decides on that particular day to preach on the book of Daniel. Except because of his speech impediment, he couldn't pronounce Daniel, so he kept calling him Daniel. Daniel. Daniel this and Daniel that. And not only did he garble his diction and talk like he had just stepped out of the backwoods, he had a high nasal twang to go along with it. And you guys thought it was hard to listen to me. 
right? At the time, Moody weighed almost 300 pounds, and he had a giant curly beard that hung halfway over his chest. And almost as soon as he began speaking that day, he lost his audience. People were embarrassed for him. Uh, Some of them in the crowd snickered openly. But Moody kept on going, and he preached the gospel, and he presented the unvarnished truth of the cross. And all at once, these, these jaded New York socialites and trendsetters who were used to being fed the sophistry of the day began to stir. And then they began to sit up. And then they began to hold onto the edge of their seats because they were no longer hearing D.L. Moody. They were listening to another voice. They were listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, they realized something that we all need to remember, and that is when we come into God's house, and when His Word is opened, and as we sit in the pews, we are not the audience. We're not the audience. Rather, we have entered into the audience chamber of the King of Kings. And that's an important paradigm shift to get because all too often folks will decide, well, uh, I don't like that particular hymn that they sung or I didn't connect with the message that particular day or uh, it was too hot or it was too cold or, or the whole thing took way too long. But once you think and speak that way, you're already on the wrong track. Because as much as I want this to be an enjoyable time for all of us, the truth is it's not about any of us. It's only about Jesus. He's the message. And the Holy Spirit is the messenger. The most that we can hope for is to have the privilege to be his mouthpiece. You know, in his, uh, his work, Purity of the Heart, the Danish uh, philosopher and theologian and, and poet Soren Kierkegaard wrote, the sermon is not given for the speaker's sake, in order that men may praise or blame him. The listener's repetition of it is what is aimed at. So if the speaker has the responsibility for what he whispers, then the listener has an equal, equally great responsibility not to fall short in his task. He goes on to say, In the theater, a play is staged before an audience who are called theatergoers. But at a devotional address, God himself is present. In the most earnest sense, God is the critical theater-goer who looks on to see how the lines are spoken and how they're listened to. The speaker is then the prompter, and the listener stands openly before God. The listener is the actor who, in all truth, acts before God. You see, that's how the, the Word of God works. And we can't change that. We can't alter it and pretty it up to gain a better hearing uh, or a more favorable response. We cannot allow in the words of one pastor for the exposition of Scripture to give way to entertainment or for theology to be replaced by theatrics or to allow doctrine to be yielded to drama because, brothers and sisters, it is God and God alone who makes His Word effective by irresistibly calling men and women out of this world. And they are not merely invited, they are summoned and drawn to faith when the gospel is preached. Because, you see, the herald doesn't accomplish this. The pastor can't make it happen. There's not a preacher in the world, including Billy Graham, who could ever change a single heart on his own. He merely speaks the truth and then trusts in the Holy Spirit of God to bring to Christ all those who hear his voice, to all those that are actually his sheep. And it is this effectual call of God that does the work. But you know, he also determined the means. 
And one of those means is the foolishness of preaching. Uh, and the fact that it doesn't depend on the preacher's eloquence to persuade people into conversion. Because you see, it's this reliance on God that makes the message simultaneously foolishness to the world and the very wisdom of God at the same time to those of us who believe. So if you've never believed before, today's the day. You know, the Bible tells us God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now He commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to Him. For He has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man He has appointed. And He proved to everyone who this is by raising Him, by raising Jesus from the dead. Brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. And so we have our message to announce. It's not the hollow message of the world, but it is empty. It is empty. It's empty in the sense that in the almost unbelievable message it brings, the message of the empty cross and the empty burial shroud and the empty tomb. Because you know, the world says if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But the truth of the matter is our God has never made a promise that was too good to be true. God isn't like that. God is different. Because instead of making promises full of emptiness on Easter, God gave us something empty but full of promise. And that's the message that we herald at Easter. The message of the empty cross and the empty burial shroud and the empty tomb. All of them empty, but all designed to demonstrate the fullness of the love of God. Just as we're told in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Died on that cross, now empty, and shed his precious blood that was spilled for our salvation. Salvation from the sin in our lives that engulfed Jesus like those yards of burial cloth that have now been laid aside and left behind in the empty chamber of a borrowed tomb that now stands as the silent witness that Christ's resurrection is not only real but revolutionary and opened a living way into the presence of God. A presence that lives on here today in these other common and seemingly foolish means of God's grace given to us in His Word and in this Lord's sacrament laid out before us and for all that God is calling, for all that God is calling to be fools for Christ's sake. Fools who will herald the message of the gospel Good news, good news from the throne of heaven. Christ is risen. Amen. Will you pray with me? <clears throat> God, our Father is truly right in our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise, especially in this Holy Supper. Especially, Lord, recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ and asking you, by the joy of his resurrection and in expectation of his coming again, that you unite us in your truth and love so that we can confess your name and sit together at one table. So come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this place and in this time that eyes may be opened, that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine and ask you to pour out your spirit upon us and these your gifts that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.